How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a recent video I made about nature and its place in the religious and spiritual life of many contemporary people, especially in the Nordic countries in Scandinavia, I included an interview with Professor David Turfjell, one of the leading historians of religions in all of Sweden and perhaps even the world, and actually my old professor. This was a really interesting discussion and David is an amazing speaker. So I thought it would be worthwhile to actually post the entire full interview for you to watch. We go into even more detail about all these topics and all the nuances of the research and all the stuff that's going on in this field right now, which is so interesting. So without further ado, here is my full interview with Professor David Turfjell. Maybe you can begin by introducing yourself and what you do. Okay, so my name is David Turfjell. I'm a Swedish historian of religion. I'm a professor in the study of religions at Södertörn University. Um, I have had a couple of different interests in my research. I began in Islamic studies, doing fieldwork in Iran, and I wrote a couple of books and articles on um, uh, sort of the, the emotional, personal side of uh, Shiite piety. In, in an Iranian context. And then I, my second field was uh, Pentecostal Christianity. So I did similar studies, uh, ethnography and fieldwork based studies of 
Pentecostalism, and I focus on Pentecostalism in uh, Romani, in the Romani communities. So among Roma people there is this Pentecostal revivalism going on, and I have studied that. And then I swapped to my third sort of uh, field of interest, which is uh, secularization mm. and um, sort of the marginalization of religion in uh, Scandinavian mainstream culture. And uh, I have focused on sort of the subtleties of what it means to be secular. So not so much the big sociological sort of historical overviews as the personal aspects of secularity. So for instance, one of the things where my latest book deals with uh, nature romanticism and sort of nature as a place for um, existential reflections and sort of heartfelt feelings among people who think of themselves as secular. And you just mentioned your latest book, Granskogs Folk, and in general the, the research you've been doing for the last few years which, like you said, is about uh, nature, romanticism, and people's relationships and experiences in nature. And I think yep. primarily focused on the Nordic countries, right? Yes, it? it's it's the Nordic countries. So we've, we've, this is a project. We've conducted research in, in all the Scandinavian countries and Finland and Estonia. So can you give a, like an overview of this phenomenon and of what you are studying and the field? Yeah, so basically, if, if you ask people, if you interview people in this part of the world, and I mean, Sweden then is allegedly one of the most secular countries in the world. In some um, surveys, as many as 85% of the population will say that religion has no place in their life whatsoever. So this is a very strong sort of non-religious stance among many people. Uh, but if you look a little deeper into that phenomenon, you'll find that there are lots of instances of what we can recognize as religion anyway. For instance, they are paying members in churches and they baptize their kids and they have biblical names and they believe and they pray and they believe in all kinds of stuff. So they're not as secular as they think. And one of those instances, one instance where this sort of secularity crumbles a little bit is when it comes to their relation to the landscape and the forest and nature in general. So basically, if you interview people in Stockholm, for instance, uh, about their view of religion, many will respond that one of the things, I mean, they will say that they're not religious, they have no, they don't like religion, they're critical to religion, it's too much power and it's unscientific and all kinds of ideas. Uh, but then they will say, many of them, that, uh, but on the other hand, Sometimes when I take a walk in the park or when I go to the archipelago or when I hike in the mountains, you know, I can feel something. Right. You know, they say something like this. So people spontaneously make a connection in this part of the world, make a connection between their own experience in nature and what they believe religious people experience in the church or in the mosque or in the synagogue. So uh, in one way to express this, that is to say that many people in this country would sort of subscribe to the notion that the forest is my church. Mm. And this, this idea that the forest is my church, uh, the nat nature is my cathedral, and I mean, phrases like this are also extremely common if you look in, in poetry and in, in pop songs and in, 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 in fiction and in people's uh, autobiographies and so on. So this is a very, it's a, tro it's a trope. It's like a motif in Scandinavian culture. Um, so we wanted to explore that trope and what we did was basically to interview people who are 
uh, walking in the forest, hiking in the mountains, uh, visiting national parks and the nature reserves areas and interview them about their ideas about nature, what it means to them and, and so on. Um, yeah, so that's the sort of general uh, uh, aim of, of, of the research. That's really fascinating. So you mentioned in your book uh, various types of experiences that people have in these uh, circumstances when they're out in, in nature. Uh, what are some examples of, of these kinds of experiences? Yeah, so, yes, so I mean, it depends a little bit on the type of nature that we are dealing with. So in Denmark, for instance, where, uh, where they have their sort of pristine beaches, I mean, opening up to the wild sea and to the Atlantic Ocean and people will go there and they will be felt to be blown through by the Atlantic winds and so on. Then they have slightly different sensations. They might be more dramatic uh, experiences. In a Swedish and also Finnish and Estonian setting, the, the feeling is primarily sort of a, a sense of, of calmness and homeliness. So the people I've interviewed around in central Sweden, they will think of the forest, they, they walk in the forest and they will feel a sense of being taken care of. They will have a sense that the trees and the landscape is like a nurturing, kind place which sort of embraces them with, with its uh, benevolence somehow. Uh, so that is a strong feeling, the feeling of being taken care of. Another feeling is the sense of, of that this is a, something completely different. This is a very prominent sort of feature in the interviews. They live their hectic city lives and then they go out to the forest and the forest is a place for taking a break, for peace, for something else. It's, it's, it's very much a contrast between city life and forest uh, sort of uh, life. So it's, it's a contrast. It's also a place where they get in touch with sort of sides of their inner emotional life that they rarely um, get in touch with otherwise. So for instance, if they have sort of unresolved issues or there, maybe there's some sadness or there's some trauma or there are some unsolved relational problems, these will sort of surface in the forest so they can think about them and they can think through them and uh, people can cry in the forest. Many people say that they, they will sit and cry in the forest or they will sort of get in touch with their innermost feelings. Um, which is another feature. Another thing is a sense of authenticity. Right. That this is something that is real and that is, you know, they, they, they become real uh, when going into the forest. They, they, they connect to real leaves and soil and trees. And, and in this, there's also, in all of this, there is this underlying criticism of urban modern life, uh, that it's sort of um, artificial and, and unhealthy. There's a lovely section in your book where you describe these people's experiences, almost like nature being a mirror for their own lives and their own. Yes, yeah, that, this is um, another sort of feature that comes back again and again. And uh, I think I call this a, it's like the nature has a metaphorical meaning. So, so I realized quite quickly when I started doing these interviews that there are two landscapes at play in these nature interactions and one is the outer landscape with the trees and, and the, the mountains and the little rivers and the forests and everything uh, but then there's what you can then call an inner landscape which is like the inner landscape of the uh, interlocutors the people i've interviewed uh, their own lives i mean their own life stories their relations their 
journey through life if you want. And it's as if they constantly mirror their inner life in the outer landscape. So for instance, if I ask in the interviews, uh, tell me about this forest, uh, many will respond like, yeah, I had a, a stressful couple of years, you know? So, so they, will, they will answer about themselves when you ask about the forest. And so there are many instances then when this, what happens in your inner life is sort of, you, you get hold of it or you can see it or it's illustrated by what happens in the outer landscape. Yeah. So take the, the classical instance of walking, following a path. I mean, it's very easy for us as, as a species, I think, to think of our own life as a journey through a landscape. I think it's, it comes very naturally to us. Uh, we can think of our, our life as a journey. We are walking, and our life is a path, and we're walking this path, and we come across different type of landscapes and different types of, of uh, situations, just like a road that goes through a landscape. Um, so this is something common, I think, for humans all, all over the world. And in this, among these secular Scandinavians, then, it would be something like, uh, okay, so for instance, if you walk through a dark forest and suddenly you come up to a hill and the landscape opens up, so you get this view over, over, over the landscape and you can see far away and you don't really see where the path is leading. So this sense of, of the un-sort of, the open-endedness of the landscape then reminds you, well, this is like my life. My life is also open-ended. I don't know where I will go. I don't know if I will stay in this relation, in this job, in this city, or if I will move, or, you know. So it's, there's this connection being made. I have another beautiful example from one of the uh, interviews. One of the guys I interviewed had uh, diabetes. So he was uh, suffering from this disease. And he told me the story where he had uh, been walking in, in the forest and he stumbled across this uh, blossoming apple tree. So it's an apple tree and it's blossoming in the spring. So it's full of white flowers and it's very beautiful. And he's sort of stunned by the beauty of this tree. And then he walks up to it and he, you know, sort of looks very closely on, on the individual flowers. And he discovers that he can't find even one flower that is perfect and flawless. I mean, every flower is a little bit tilted. It's, uh, so some of the leaves have fallen off. It's, I mean, none of them are perfect. And then he realizes from this sort of experience in the outer landscape that uh, being a bit flawed, is the, this is the natural state of things. Yeah. Nature is not filled of perfect samples. Every, all of them are a bit flawed. So being, having a, a, a chronical disease like this this is not a, a deviation from the normal state. It's not an anomaly. It's, this is the normal state of things. And this is also what we experience as beautiful. So suddenly, by seeing this apple tree, he, he gets a different perspective on his own uh, personal situation. Beauty is imperfect. Beauty is imperfect and it's, nor, it's natural. This is what it is like. Uh, and this metaphoric, metaphor, there are many instances like this. But what happens then when you connect metaphorically to the landscape in this sense is that um, uh, there is a very strong sense of connection. And this is the most prominent sort of feature or, or thing that uh, the informants say, that they feel a sense of connection. They get a sense of connection with the landscape when they are out in the forest. Uh, and that's understandable if you think of this metaphorical connection, because what you realize then is that what happens in my life, in my very personal life journey, in my inner landscape, 
it also goes on out there among the trees and the animals and the birds and, and the leaves. This, this, this combination of growth and, uh, and decay, for instance. So we have these leaves, they are decaying. This tree is dying, something in it is dying. But because it's dying, it will hibernate and it will sort of gather energy. And when spring comes, it will re-blossom. This connection between the inner world and the processes that happens in my inner life, in my inner sort of uh, landscape, uh, when you feel that that is reflected in the outer landscape, you get the sense of connection. So I am, which in its turn then creates the sense of not being so lonely because I am this, I mean, people will tell me that in, in the city, uh, when they live their hectic city lives with their social media and they're going on the subway and, you know, the, the, the city, the urban, modern uh, life, uh, they feel a bit like a satellite, like sort of they are alone, they are an entity of their own moving through this hectic, hectic city. But when they go out into the forest, they feel that their inner processes are going on outside of them as well. So they are part of a bigger process, dying and decaying and living and sadness and happiness and coming and going and all these things are happening outside of them and inside of them. So they feel less lonely and uh, they also feel less, uh, feel that death is less threatening because death, okay, death will maybe strike this particular entity. But the processes that happens inside of it and outside of it, they will go on. So yeah. death is not as big a thing. And they really believe in death. They are secular. They don't believe in a transcendent reality outside of this world or continuation uh, after death for, for this individual. But there's some kind of continuation because the processes are going on. So, um, and this I, I suppose if you, come to the Scandinavian countries and you don't know about this, how people are like here. They are, might be a bit introvert and they go to the forest alone and you might feel they are very lonely. And I mean, there, there are many stories of people coming from other places, coming here and thinking this is very strange. They must be very lonely since they go out alone. But if you interview these people, uh, they go out, they go from the city full of people they go out, take the subway out to some place and they walk out into the forest. They sit alone under a tree and reflect for a couple of hours and then they go back. And when you interview them about what happened, they say, well, now I feel a bit less lonely. <laughs> so it's, it's a very paradoxical thing, yeah. but it's kind of understandable also, I think. It's really interesting. I was struck when I was reading the book uh, with some of the, the more profound or dramatic experiences, like, for example, you mentioned some people experience almost like a death of the, the self and the ego and yeah. what, what you call the numinous, which is Rudolf Otto's yes. term, right? Um, which, as readers of the book, might think, well, that sounds like a religious experience, whatever that means. But do yeah. these people themselves see these experiences as religious or how do they? You know, in, in this uh, Scandinavian secular mainstream culture, uh, people are very um, sensitive about the very word of yeah. religion and religious and spiritual. They are, these words are imbued with so many associations and a political history and a, a sort of discursive history, which makes them very difficult to use for them. So many will say, 
well, this is almost a religious experience, but when they say the word religious, they will do like this, like quotation marks, or it's almost sacred, because they're not comfortable with the words. So they themselves are not calling them religious. But actually, if you, because I've also interviewed people who are uh, sort of uh, believing and professed Christians, and they have the same kind of experiences, and those who have the strongest nature, spiritual experiences, in, in this country are people who are also believing Christians. And I suppose also from other religions, but uh, most of them are Christians. Uh, and this means that uh, one way to define a religious experience in my material is to say it's a nature experience that happens to a Christian person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or someone who has a Christian language. Right. Because if you look at the, the content of the actual experiences, so one of those seculars, they might say they were, they're running in the forest and they have this sense of interconnectedness or connection with the landscape and what happens within me happens without. And I am an entity, but I'm also connected to a greater world and to nature and to the other species and to the ecological systems and to the universe. And we are all a part of this. Um, and when they, especially if you, if you walk for a couple of hours in the landscape or if you run or if you're really exhausted because you've been doing physical exercise there, um, this sense of sort of yourself sort of dissolving will be more prominent because you are so tired that you can't really think or use your brain. So you become a, a body. You have this sensation of becoming a physical body in a physical world. Mm -hmm. And this sense of being alive among other things which are also alive and we are just alive here together. Uh, which is in one way similar to a sense of ego dissolvement that we find in traditional religion. Uh, so in this sense, and if, if, if there was a Christian person who was a believe, sort of believing Christian with a Christian language, and, uh, or a Muslim for that matter, or, or a Jew or a Hindu or whatever, then they will use that language to express that exact thing. So they'll say, well, I had the sense of when they see beauty, they will say, this is like the grace. I feel an experience of the grace of God or the beauty of creation. And but I'm not sure that the experience is so different. It's just the language is, is different. And of course, language forms experience, so it's, it's complicated. But there is also, of course, a difference. I mean, it's not just the same. And the difference lies in the sort of the worldview or the interpretation of these experiences in terms of so the, met the metaphysical consequences they get. Yeah because they really don't have, the seculars that I've interviewed, they really don't have um, a belief in a transcendent reality in the sense of a continuation after this life of this individual self or something like that. And I actually made, in the, in the end of the book, I make this comparison with the, um, a, a section from St. Augustine when he, he has this famous question, so this is fourth century Christian uh, thinker, and he has this question where he asked, what is it that I love when I say that I love my God? I say that I love God, says St. Augustine. So what do I mean by this? What is it I love when I say that I love God? It, it's quite a good philosophical question. What is it, what is the object of the religious feeling? And then he comes to some kind of conclusion about that, where he lists uh, a couple of things which which he is not loving when he loves God, and that is like all the temporal things, food that will d disappear and uh, uh, drink that will disappear. I love something that is eternal. And if you take that uh, that phrase from him, 
or that sort of his response to his own question, and you remove all the negative words. So instead of saying, I, I'm not desiring uh, water that disappears, or food that decays, or love that will be ended by death, and you just remove all the not, then you will get something that is quite close to what my respondents think. It's almost think. like the opposite. Yeah, it's almost opposite because it's, and this connects also to this um, sort of ecological movement and, and the engagement for, for climate change and for a dying planet and species being uh, extinct and, and so on. So it's actually the fact that this tree or this forest, it can disappear. And if it disappears, it will never come back. And I love this. I mean, the respondents, they feel this strong connection to a world that actually can disappear. Mm -hmm. So they are not some kind of neo-Platonists who believe that this world is a mirror image of something that is eternal. This is actually what's there. It's the physical, natural world. It's there and it's fantastic and I'm a part of it and I can dissolve into it and myself is sort of interconnected to it. And uh, they love it in, with a religious passion and it can disappear. So death is there, so we need to, which also then creates a moral imperative to actually take care of it, because it can actually disappear. It's really beautiful. Like you said, you've been focusing on the, the Nordic countries and Sweden in particular. Would you say that this is a global phenomenon or is it very localized in, in this part of the world? Uh, well, it's, it's a bit of both. So um, in one sense, there is a Northern European uh, sort of uh, interest or uh, there's there's an old cultural heritage in this part of the world of nature of turning to nature which goes deep and which, which can be found in pre-christian times and, and it's been there a long uh, long time in this part of the world I mean we can also find that type of attitudes in many parts of the world but there's something specific I think in a European context at least between the Germanic and the, the Latin uh, parts of Europe where the, the northern Germanic cultures have been more nature-oriented in yeah. some sense for, for millennia. So there is this deep historical roots, and I don't want to deny those. But there's also, uh, and then there's something culture-specific or regionally specific related to uh, sort of the national romantic stories, the type of uh, narratives about uh, about Swedes and Danes and Norwegians that were um, sort of uh, cultivated by natural romanticism at the turn of the last century. So there's a story about nature love being a part of Swedishness, which has also formed then a part of a national self-identity and which built, of course, on things that were there before. And, but sort of exaggerated them. And the same we find in Norway and, and Finland and Estonia and, and, and all these countries. Uh, so there's this connected to uh, a specialness in, in the, on a discursive level in the narratives. Uh, but then it's also a global thing because it's, uh, humans have always connected to the landscape and this is a part of what we are as a species. And also it's global in the sense that there's a sort of an urban middle class uh, culture that is global. So if you go to urban, I mean this, this type of nature romantic style or attitudes in Sweden are mostly found in the big cities. 
I mean, if you want to buy the gears to go out to, to climb mountains, you'll have to go to the very city center of Stockholm because it's an urban phenomenon, because it's for urban people that nature is this other place that you go to explore and find peace and, and something else. And that type of sort of, uh, you could call it sort of city, urban, upper middle class, if you want, you could call it bourgeois, but that would be to stretch it a bit too far, I suppose. But middle class, urban, globalized, secular culture, that is found in many places. So I have been to Iran a lot, and in, in Tehran, there are urban middle class seculars who would go hiking in the mountains and who would have the same kind of experience. I heard the same movement is there in Lahore and Karachi and in Pakistan. It happens in Japan, it happens in North America, South America, it's all over the place. So it's a part of sort of a global, uh, global culture in that sense also. You talked about the cultural and historical aspects behind this. Is, is that, but in the book you also, men, you also mentioned that there might be biological reasons behind it. What, what's, what, what's your stance on that? Is it, is it primarily yeah, cultural? Yes, uh, well there, are, there is actually quite a lot of research on the, uh, from a biochemical pharmaceutical sort of natural science perspective on the the health benefits of walking in forests mm -hmm. and they have all kinds of theories and I, I cannot assess them because I'm not a natural scientist but they have um, you know there are these certain biochemical uh, substances that you can find in certain plants that are beneficial for our immune system uh, and there are uh, earth bacteria that are good for uh, for us and and obviously just walking and being outdoors and breathing uh, f fresh air and and moving your body is uh, I mean health uh, inducing in all kinds of ways so there are those aspects but I strongly believe that there are also I mean those there might be truth to those explanations but there's also this uh, cultural expectancy on nature to be health-inducing. Uh, uh, so, and if you, if there's a cultural expectancy, and I have also some uh, a chapter on a psychological theory that can explain this, which we find in psychology and psychology of religion, but also actually in mainstream psychology as sort of a, I think it's quite a, a dominant theory nowadays, uh, which is a theory called uh, predictive coding. Yeah. So the idea is basically that. And it relates to emotional responses to, to, to environment. So the idea is basically that our brain, through evolution, has uh, evolved to be able to anticipate what's going to happen next. So we are walking in the forest and a bear comes, comes out. Uh, and what happens? Well, we, our brain then, uh, this is the lingo of this neuroscientific research. So the brain will respond by preparing the body for what it expects will now come. So we, when we see a bear, we will expect to have to fight or flee. So it will start those processes in our body, which are, we need for fighting and fleeing, which is pumping adrenaline, uh, raising the pulse or whatever, doing all kinds of stuff. And when we, when we, our conscious mind experiences this uh, uh, change of our body, this bodily change, we will construe it as fear. So what is fear? Well, fear is the, uh, the conscious experience of a physical change. 
Now let's say we get to know, know this bear and it's a nice bear and it's a friendly uh, domesticated bear and we become best friends with the bear and we hug it every day and we love this bear. And then a, couple, a year later we will walk in the same forest and this bear comes out. Now we know that this is not fleeing or fighting, it means cuddling and taking a nap. So then our body will respond, preparing our body for cuddling and napping, creating senses of calmness and slowing down and, you know, all those feelings. Yeah. So this is what emotion is, sort of the, the motor program of a body, the body responding for what the brain thinks will come next. So this means that the emotional reaction to something a landscape, for instance, or a, a person or a situation uh, is dependent on the expectation of what it will lead to. So we can take another example. Let's say you come to, you have had a hard time in school when you were a kid. Uh, it was hard, it was tough, you were bullied. And then you come to the school again, 20 years later, you'll come to the same, this actually happened to me yesterday because I visited my old high school. And uh, you came to the same place where I was as a 14 year old and you walk in the same corridors and suddenly I feel this anxiety right. rising because it was tough to be a 14 year old and it was for most of us and you know this adolescent time was very hard yeah. uh, so when you come to the place associated with that place my body thinks oh this now I have to deal with all these problems so it creates preparation which I then construe as yeah. anxiety and fear uh, or let's say I would visit my grandmother's house where I had a beautiful childhood and I was there with my grandmother and she gave me, you know, hot chocolate and, you know, it was so safe and, and lovely. If I would go there now, maybe I would become sleepy and a bit, you know, sad perhaps in, 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 a, in a calm way because this is the expect, what I expect from this place. Yeah. So if you have this sort of theory in mind, you can ask why do people from this part of the world get a sense of comfort and familiarity and uh, touching, getting in touch with their emotions when they go to the forest. Well, it's because their, their system expects this forest to trigger those emotions. And then you can ask, why does the forest trigger those emotions? Well, it's because they have grown up in a culture, and this is very true if you've grown up in Sweden, where the school, all the children books, every poet, uh, musical text, the, the general culture, the law, the, the curriculum for, for education, all of it tells this story again and again and again. The forest is a benevolent, beautiful place where you're supposed to feel uh, safe and spiritual and calm, and which calls then on the, in, in its turn for a historical explanation. So this is just a long detour to motivate why we need history of religions to understand something, <laughs> something like this. And because this cultural uh, sort of situation then has been created by a history, yeah. uh, which I then sort of go through. That makes me think of, we have a, a summer house in Western Sweden, which we go to every summer. And I associate that with my childhood and you know, yeah. all those happy memories. And I can very much experience the same thing when we go there each summer that you sort of enter another you become calm somehow yeah. just because you associate that place another thing I, I thought about was that which might connect to that but that um, when I was a kid I had a habit for a period of always falling asleep or watching the Simpsons on the TV when I fell yeah. asleep and eventually it got to the point where I could put on the Simpsons 
midday, yeah. and I would always fall asleep yes, because yes. my brain associated that with, yeah. with sleeping. Yeah, that's how it works. And this childhood thing is very important because most of the people we have interviewed, they have gotten to know the forest in their childhood. So if you ask what you see or tell me about this place, many will say, well, I suppose it's childhood memories and it's, it's childhood is very important, very important. And this is also one of the things that creates this sense of authenticity. Because if, if you think back, I mean, until we were maybe 11, 12 or something, in one way, I can feel like this at least. I was myself the most yeah. up until that age. And then when, when you became older and grown up, you started to have all this wearing these masks or pretending to be someone. And uh, you, you sort of uh, changed yourself in an artificial way. So if you want to come back to your authentic, true me, well, that would be the 11-year-old me somehow. Yeah. And, you get, and when you go to the place where you played as a kid, just like with the Simpson case, well, then you get in touch with that authentic self that you used to be. And this also explains in one way why people become a bit childish in the forest, because they are. So they can also get in touch with uh, not just their sort of uh, childhood self, but also to the kind of moods and feelings and, and playful attitudes that they had as a kid. So, for instance, they can talk to trees. Many people talk to trees. They will, you know, hug the trees or, you know, have this feeling that they are personal entities. And um, that is sort of a childhood play that sort of they get in touch with, uh, even as adults. Yeah. This is a, such a fascinating topic and, and I think a very important one because it is such a major part of many people's uh, well, lives in the modern world. So I think having a way to study it in the way that you do is, is really valuable in many ways. Um, thank you so much for, for talking to us. Thank uh, you. Is there anything you have coming up that you would like to promote? or? Uh, well, I have, I have a new book coming up about um, religiosity and uh, sort of uh, um, the, the human capacity to construe the world in a religious way. Okay. It's unfortunately in Swedish. It's called, um, uh, the subtitle is On Human Abilities to, to pr uh, Animate the World. Yeah. yeah. I suppose would be a, a translation. Since this interview was actually recorded in October 2022, the book that David mentions here has actually since then been released and goes under the Swedish title En Lockton i Ödemarken. Which, uh, again, if you're if you're Swede, you can read Swedish. Then I highly recommend not only uh, the, the the last book, Granskogs Folk, which this interview is about, but also this uh, more recent book, uh, which you can find basically anywhere in a Swedish bookshop. It's actually become really popular. So check that out and check out David's other research and and, and writings. It's really amazing stuff. For any Swedish speakers out there, I highly recommend David's earlier work. Of course, I will leave links and all of that in the description to to his uh, research and his book so you can check that out and again thank you so much thank you
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.